I want to tell you a story about a man I met at Gundagai. I grew up in Gundagai, New South Wales, a small town in uh, New South Wales, about 2,000 people. I met a guy called Don. Uh, Don was an old guy when I met him. He was 86. Uh, I don't know if you have any 86-year-old friends. Um, I met Don when he started coming to our church. Uh, he was pretty old when he started coming to church, and Don was a real character. One of those old guys that you know, loves to tell a story. Um, I'd go to church and he'd tell me stories. And Don's story, uh, his kind of life story, was an incredible story, really. Uh, when Don was a young man, uh, he was a pilot, and so when World War II came along, he volunteered himself. Because he was a pilot, they put him straight into the training to be a, a fighter pilot, you know, to fly those strategic bombing missions. And Don was really quite exceptional at it. Uh, between the ages of 18 and 22, during World War II, Don flew 108 strategic bombing missions. 108. Uh, most people didn't make 25 because they got shot down. It was that dangerous. If you made 50, the Air Force would say, you could, you've done your service, you could go. Uh, but Don wasn't that kind of guy. He kept flying, serving his country. Don was shot down twice, both times survived by parachute. Uh, on one occasion of a fleet of 30 planes that went out, Don was the only one that returned. Uh, as I said, Don was a man of many stories. But these weren't the stories that he liked to tell. Don didn't like talking about the war. Now, the stories that he'd tell me were actually stories that came after the war. Stories of things that he'd done in his life. See, after his life, Don actually lived a really impressive way. Uh, he'd, he'd been involved in numerous charities, built a nursing home, he would have people, invite people into his house, have them stay. Uh, he'd fundraise huge amounts of money for different people, different causes. <coughs> Done all these good deeds. Uh, he was a great guy, he was a really good character. And from the outside, it seemed like he had it all together. But what was happening on the inside in Don's life was actually very different. One night, he confessed to my dad. Don and my dad were good friends. One night, uh, Don confessed to my dad that he couldn't sleep at night because he felt so guilty for what he'd done at war. He'd wake up in sweats uh, because he was just overwhelmed with guilt because he dropped bombs on people. Guilty because why did he survive when so many of his mates didn't? See, on the outside, it seemed like Don had it all together from what I could tell. But on the inside, he was crippled with guilt. Outwardly, Don was a happy kind of guy. But on the inside, he was a mess. I wonder if you ever feel like that. I wonder if you ever feel like Don. Kind of um, put on a bit of a show on the outside, but there's stuff going on on the inside. You feel guilty. Uh, you feel like you're a bit of a mess. You've sinned in some area of your life and you can kind of hide it pretty well amongst people, but you know that you can't hide it from God. And it starts eating at you. And you, you don't know what to do. Your Christianity, your walk with God, it, it feels kind of false and hollow because you feel guilty. It feels like you don't know how to pray. Uh, it feels like 
You don't know what your faith is about. It feels like, well, it kind of feels like a bit of a sham. What do you do about that? What do you do when you know that you want to serve God, you want to live for Him, you want to feel joyous about your walk with Him, but you just feel guilty on the inside? I don't know what it is that makes you feel guilty. Um, Maybe it's, you know, that you've been gossiping about people. Maybe it's an addiction to something like pornography. Maybe you cheated on a test. Maybe you plagiarised something. Um, Maybe you just have been going too far with your boyfriend or girlfriend and it's eating at you. And you want to change that. See? You can't. You, You kind of feel weak. There's, there's all this shame going on. How do you get rid of that? The question we, we want to ask tonight is, how do we get rid of our guilt? Those feelings of guilt that weigh us down. How do we, like Don, get rid of 60 years of guilt because he knew that he dropped a bomb on an orphanage? How do you deal with that? Well, God says repent. Repent. One word. You might be thinking, well, Steve, I already know about that. I already know about repentance. I've heard that before. What I want us to ask tonight, as we look at Jonah chapter 3, is do we really get it? Do we really get repentance? Do we really get the fact that God gives us a fresh start when we come back to Him? That we can walk freely in His love. That we don't have to be weighed down by our guilt. See, Do you really get that? Repentance is a process. Uh, It's not just one thing. I think a simple way of explaining repentance is to think about doing a U-turn in a car. You know when you're driving along and you need to do a U-turn, you kind of, what happens in that process? Well, you've got to acknowledge something, don't you? You have to acknowledge that you're going the wrong way. And you have to stop, you have to slow down, you have to turn around. And the third part, the bit that I think we struggle with is Actually, I have to start going the other way and concentrate on that. The three-part process to repentance. And the big thing I think we need to realise is that repentance isn't just a one-off thing. Repentance isn't just something that you do to get into God's kingdom. You don't do it just when you first become a Christian. No, the Christian life is a life of continual repentance, a continual acknowledgement of our sin and turning back to God and going the other way. See, let me ask you, is that what your walk with God looks like? A continual turning back to Him in repentance? A continual asking for forgiveness? Or do you, like me sometimes, just not do it? You just kind of push that sin down and because you kind of like it, right? And you want, you want to hold on to it, but eventually the guilt of it just weighs you down. It gets to you. We need to deal with that guilt. So often we resist repentance. Find it hard to come to God in prayer. I resist repentance, I think, uh, because I just don't like admitting that I'm in the wrong. It's pride then, right? It's embarrassing, it's humiliating to have to repent. Often it leads to consequences we'd rather avoid. 
We don't like repentance. We don't like asking for forgiveness because what it's really saying is that what's going on on the outside, the outside that we kind of like, isn't actually what's going on on the inside. I mean, I don't, I don't even like admitting I'm going the wrong way in the car. If I'm driving with Laura, my wife, and she says, do you know where you're going? Yeah. I don't know where I'm going. I've got no idea sometimes. That's a lie. I shouldn't lie either. But I don't even like admitting I'm going the wrong way in the car. What about admitting something about my character or my behaviour? That's hard, right? I want to hide that. I want to hide that sin. The problem is that every time I try to hide it, Eventually, I feel guilty. Uh, it's foolish, actually, to hide our sin. We might be able to hide it from people, but I think we know in our heart of hearts that we can't hide it from God. We can't hide it from the one who sees everything. Yet we still try. Try, don't we? Talked about repentance being a bit like a U-turn. That's getting back on the right road, concentrating on that, going that way. Repenting means realigning our thoughts with God's thoughts, with His ways. Aligning our thoughts in our ways with what His Word says. It's getting back on the road of obedience, following Him, following God's script for our life, rather than just following our own evil, sinful desires. Following those sinful desires, that disobedience, that actually leads to being drowned in that guilt and shame. That's what happened to Jonah, wasn't it? Remember Jonah chapter 1? After choosing that downward spiral of disobedience, what happened to Jonah? Well, chapter 1 verse 15, Jonah's drowning in guilt and sin. Jonah's slowly sinking down, we saw last week, to his death. If you haven't been here or if you've been away the last couple of weeks, let me just fill you in briefly on what we've learnt from Jonah so far. Um, we've learnt two really significant things. Two things that are actually quite different. Two things about God. Number one, uh, we saw that our disobedience leads to us being forsaken by God. That was the first thing we saw. Our disobedience leads to sin and death. Number two, we saw the flip side of it. Last week we saw that repentance, when Jonah called out to God, God rescued him, swept him up. Swept him up with a whale, but swept him up and saved him. Gave him new life. See, the book of Jonah, it started with God calling Jonah to be a part of God's plan. Jonah was called to go and preach to Nineveh, but what did he do? He refused. He went the other way, he went down a jopper, he went off to Tarshish, got on a boat. What did God do? Well, God said, I'm not going to let that disobedience go unchecked. God sent a storm, which meant that Jonah was then tossed overboard. He sank down, he was drowning. But eventually, he came to his senses and he called out to God. Because he was drowning in his sin. He turned up, and as soon as he did, God saved him. So we saw last week, salvation comes from the Lord when we turn back to Him. See, when Jonah finally realised the consequence of his sin, the consequence of the disobedience he chose, that it actually leads to death, 
when he looked up to God in repentance and God swept him up in arms of grace. That's what our God is like. He's merciful and compassionate. God sent a big fish to rescue him. And that fish, well, it spat Jonah out on dry land, on safe land. Big idea of what's happened so far in Jonah is Jonah sinned, Jonah repented, God saved. And now we see, chapter 3, God gave Jonah a fresh start. (coughs) After Jonah repents, God gives Jonah a fresh start. So if you've got Jonah chapter 3 open in your Bibles there or on your phone or whatever it is you're using at the moment, Jonah 3, it actually, it starts like it's a fresh start, doesn't it? Chapter 3 starts just like chapter 1. Uh, they're exactly the same words in the first few verses. Uh, chapter 1 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Chapter 3 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah, it's like as though it's happening again. Jonah's getting a fresh start after he's turned back to God. God gives him the same task. He says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Give it the message that I gave you. Just like before, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he told him, go to Nineveh and take God's message. Exactly the same thing happens again. God recommissions Jonah. He's been given a fresh start, hasn't he? He's been reinstated. Because he's repented. God doesn't make him feel guilty. Doesn't say, Jonah, you need to do this and this and this and then you can come back into my service. Doesn't make him kind of make up for his sin. No, God welcomes him back in. Welcomes him back into his service. Gives him the same task that God had planned for him all along. And this time, Jonah, knowing his salvation, knowing the wonder that it is to be saved from death and to be given life, well, he gets on board with God's plan. Have a look there in verse 3. Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Finally, it's taken us three chapters, finally Jonah has got to the place that he was meant to go in the first place. In verse 4, Jonah starts preaching. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out the message, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. Jonah goes, and he proclaims God's message. And what happens? Well, have a look there at verse 5. People of Nineveh believe God. They repent, just like Jonah did. They call for a fast, from the greatest to the least. They all put on sackcloth. Uh, it's a bit like a, it's a bit like a Hessian bag, um, putting on sackcloth. Nothing glamorous about it. Last night we dressed up in fluoro. Nick's done the doubles. He's in fluoro again tonight. Um, last night we all dressed up in fluoro. Why did we do that? Well, kind of to draw attention to ourselves, right? To go, hey, look how fun I am. I don't know if that was you. That was, that was me anyway. Dressing in sackcloth is the exact opposite. To dress in sackcloth is to say, we are worthless. It's to humble yourself. That's what the Ninevites have done after they've heard God's word. They've humbled themselves before God and they're admitting outwardly that they've gone wrong. 
What was it that made these people repent, turn back to God? Well, it's simple. They heard the word of God and believed. That's how it worked back then in Nineveh and that's how God still works today. God's word causes us to acknowledge our sin. God's word calls us to turn back to him and have faith in him. Most likely Jonah's sermon was a little bit longer than these eight words than we get in verse 4. Verse 4 it says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I don't think that was the whole message. So there was probably a lot more to that. I think this is just a summary of God's message. What's the big idea of this summary? Well, the big idea is that God has appointed a time for judgment. Isn't it? In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. God has appointed a time for wickedness to be judged. It's a message of doom. God's word here says that God will judge wickedness. God will judge sinfulness. It's not a message that we like to hear that often. We heard in week one, as we looked at the Ninevites, we heard in week one just how wicked the Ninevites really were. How, how in their kind of battle tactics, when they went out and they conquered a town, um, they would often get the leaders of the other army and they would impale them on stakes. Sometimes they would cut the other leaders' heads off and wear them around their neck. These guys, these Ninevites, were brutal, wicked people. They were incredibly sinful. And so Jonah takes God's message, God's message that God won't put up with sinful wickedness forever. He's not going to put up with it. He's appointed a time for judgment. That's a good thing, isn't it? That God has appointed a time to end wickedness? <coughs> that he'll judge it? That he'll bring the wicked to justice? Isn't that a good thing? That evil and violent people in the world will get their recompense? Do you think that's a good thing? <coughs> Do you know, they estimate that around 100 million people were killed in the 20th century, murdered by people like Hitler, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Joseph Stalin, Fidel Castro, now 100 million people killed by wicked despots last century. God will bring an end to that. God will judge wickedness. God has appointed a time of judgment. He's not going to let that wickedness go on and on forever. He will bring the wicked to justice, just like back in Nineveh's time. Just as Jonah said, in 40 days, this wickedness will be overthrown. But Jonah's message has a profound effect on the Ninevites, doesn't it? The people here, they believe God's word and they repent from the least to the greatest. Even the king repents. Have a look there in your Bibles. Just read out verses 6 to 9. It says, the word, of the, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation published throughout the whole town of Nineveh. 
by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. No, let them, fe- let them not even feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Verse 9. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What happens here in these verses? Even the king humbles himself, gets up off his throne, takes off his robe, his glorious royal robe, and he puts on a sackcloth, a hessian bag, and he sits down in a heap of ashes. This is the old school way, the 8th century way of confession. (coughs) It's a way of publicly humbling yourself. It's a way of symbolising your shame before God. It's the ancient way, I think, of getting down on your knees and saying, I'm sorry, God, for the sins that I've done. I'm sorry, God, for treating you and your ways as worthless. But saying, I deserve nothing. I deserve to be punished. But God, have mercy on me. That's what this dressing in sackcloth means. That's what this humbling itself means. God, I, I acknowledge my wickedness, but have mercy on me. I wonder if you've done that lately. I think sometimes we, we fool ourselves into thinking that we're actually not that bad as people. <coughs> we compare ourselves to people like Hitler and Stalin, and we think we're doing okay. Haven't murdered a million people lately. But Jesus kind of ups the ante on that sort of reasoning, doesn't he? Jesus says, though we may not have committed those acts with our hands, we've actually done it in our hearts. Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. We could maybe modernise it a little bit and we could say that when you slandered that person, you wished they were dead. When you looked at porn last night, you invested in the sex trade. When you plagiarised your essay, you just stole for your own gain. When you went too far with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you just used them shamelessly. We can modernise it like that, can't we? We're just as guilty, aren't we, in our heart of hearts? I think we know that. When judgment falls on the wicked... On those people that we look at and we go, oh, they're wicked. When judgment falls on them, isn't it right that we would sit under that same judgment? That we too have sinned, turned our back on God. I don't mean to be just kind of forceful and making us all feel bad about our sin. But I think it's entirely appropriate that we come to see this every now and then. John 16 says the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. That's what that feeling of guilt is. It's the Holy Spirit working in us, telling us not to go that way. The wonder of the Gospel is that God tells us in his word to turn from that way, to turn from wickedness, to turn back to him. 
Because when we do, the judgment doesn't fall on us. So in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, the king says this, the king says, Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent. God may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? As Nineveh repents, God turns from his fierce anger. Look at, look at it there in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, how they humbled themselves before God, what did God do? God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. God did not pour out his wrath on the guilty. And if you know that you're the guilty person, person, then that's good news, isn't it? That you don't have to face that anymore. But the question is, the question I have is, does this mean that God just simply tolerates wickedness? Does he just kind of forgive and forget and let evil go unpunished? Will the rapist and the murderer be never brought to justice? Why does God tolerate such wickedness? Well, the answer is, he doesn't, and he won't. God doesn't tolerate wickedness. The holy and the right God can't be unjust in that way. He can't leave sin unpunished. Now, in forgiving Nineveh and their wickedness, God did not fail to administer justice. No, God delayed his judgment for the appointed time. It didn't come in 40 days, it It came 800 years later as a different king came from heaven, came down from his royal throne, took off his robes, was stripped of them and hung on that cross, humbled himself to the point of death. That's when judgment fell. That's when justice was done for people like the Ninevites. That's when their wickedness was punished, when it fell on Jesus. It didn't fall on the king of Nineveh, because he repented. He fell on the king of kings because he gave us his life. Jesus hung there. We read in Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. And all our guilt and all our shame falls on him. It's nailed there with him on the cross so we can leave it. Jesus became worthless on that cross to take away our sin and to restore our worth. Jesus hung on that cross so that we like Jonah and the Ninevites who repent can have a fresh start. See, although sin, our sin and our guilt cripples us at times, the one that we need to keep reminding ourselves is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from that. It washes it away. Where the Spirit once convicted us of guilt, as we turn in repentance, the Spirit now says a different thing to us. He says, you are the children of God. So walk that way. That's what repentance does. It takes us from being wicked, evil people who reject God to being loved and accepted people through Christ 
who are his children, who walk freely with him. That's what we need to remember daily, isn't it? I think that's what we need to keep remembering. That all our guilt and all our shame has fallen on Jesus. It's nailed at the cross with him. So my question is, have you done that lately? Or are you still hiding those sins, pushing them down? We can have true restoration through Christ. True freedom in Him. When we do that full U-turn, when we acknowledge what we've done, come to Him in repentance, and we start going the other way again. Start living that way because all our guilt's been left back there. See, the cross not only takes away our guilt, pays for our sin, it gives us a fresh start. That's the joy of repentance. I think too often we stop at point two. We repent of our sin, but we still think it's got a hold on us. And for some, sometimes if there's an addiction in our life, then that's real and we need to, to talk about that with other people. But I think a lot of the time we keep hanging on to it. We remember the time when we did that and we think that we can't approach God anymore. We need to remember that it's all been nailed there with Christ. He took it for us. Our judgment, our guilt, our shame has been taken by Him. That's how we get on serving the Lord with joy. When we know the joy of our forgiveness. I told you at the start about Don, a man plagued by guilt. Spent his whole life trying to make up for it. Doing good works, supporting charities, all that sort of thing. Carried that guilt around for 62 years. See, later that night after Don poured his heart out, my dad read to him this verse, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Read this verse, it says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you hear those last words? God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's God. That night, Don confessed his sin. For the first time, he found Jesus. For 62 years, he'd been battling with this guilt. And that night, Don found peace and joy. The last memory I have have of Don isn't actually of Don. It was at Don's funeral. I met Don's son, Lindsay, at his funeral. Don died a couple of years after this. And Don's son, Lindsay, came up to me and he said, I don't know what you Christians have, but my dad found peace in those last few years of his life. He was a changed man. His son, Lindsay, could recognise it. For Don, he carried around that guilt for 62 years. I want to say to you tonight, don't, do that. Don't be crippled by guilt. It hinders the way we serve God. It stuffs up the joy that we should have and should experience as Christians. No, daily, humble yourself, come back to God, confess your sin, and leave it there. Start going that way. Concentrate on that. 
and know the joy of your salvation. How about a pie? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who does not leave wickedness unchecked. That you are an amazing God who has given us your Son to take that punishment for us. You don't want us to be people who are carrying around guilt and sin and shame. You want us to leave it at the cross. Father, I pray that you would help us do that. Help us to walk freely in the joy of our salvation as we serve you and tell others about it. Amen.